Let's get our uh, Bibles out. Let's turn to uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And uh, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 4, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, have you ever had a time in your life, have you ever had a season in your life where God has had to humble you? Ever been there? If you said no, you're lying or you're seven. I don't know which. Okay, maybe both. But um, right, all of us, right? All of us have found ourselves in seasons or in times of life where God has had to humble us, right? Whether it be rebellion, whether it be some kind of persistent sin, whether it be uh, just arrogance or pride, we've we found ourselves in this season, in this time of life, in this place where God has had to humble us. And the story that we're going to see in Daniel chapter 4 with respect to Nebuchadnezzar, is that is that story it's the story of how God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar for Nebuchadnezzar's good and for God's glory in fact that's what the the theme or the main idea of what we're going to see in chapter 4 is just that God humbles us for our good and for his glory and more specifically what's going to come out of this or at least what we hope uh, to come out of this is that as we see him being humbled And certainly in our lives, we hope this to be true as well, that as we see that happening, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to see and behold the power and the dominion and the rule of God, and and that he's over all things. And of course, that that includes you and I. That's true for us as well. And And Nebuchadnezzar is going to respond in submissive praise and honor to God. I'll just tell you that the word this morning is going to require some humility on your part and on my part to hear what God has for us. So by God's grace, I hope we're, we're willing and ready to engage and to hear that and to lean into that. And so before we go any further, why don't you join me? Let's pray uh, for our time together in God's word. And as always, we'll pray for another church in the area. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we, God, we want to come as men and women who are humble, as men and women who uh, seek to honor you, to glorify you, to praise you. God, that, that we would recognize and realize that without you we're lost, that we're hopeless. And so we pray that we would come in great humility. God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to hear and to respond accordingly to the truth of your word. And God, we pray not only that you would be doing that here, as always, we want to pray for other churches in the area. And God, this morning specifically, we pray for Pastor Ryan Kelly and for Desert Springs. And I thank you for Pastor Ryan, for his friendship. God, just what a godly man and leader he is. We pray that you'd be empowering and equipping him to lead uh, that body of believers in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. And God, that you would be glorified in and among that church in the same way that we desire that you would be glorified in and among faith church. So God, have your way. Do the work that only you could do. And God, we pray that you would... um, Bring us to a place of humility for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Humbled Praise. Humbled Praise. And, and really, it's the conclusion of where Nebuchadnezzar finds himself at the end of all that unfolds uh, in the account that we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 4. And, and so, listen, I'll just own right at the outset, I understand that this is an account about Nebuchadnezzar. This is detailing what has happened in his life and how this is unfolding in his life. But in an attempt for us to, uh, to, to let God's Word speak to us, right, it's not simply to just inform us or give details 
details to us or even entertain us. It's meant to teach and to instruct and to, uh, uh, to guide us through life. And so we're going to state our main ideas in a way that, that, that they're applicable to us. I understand this is a story about Nebuchadnezzar. This isn't ultimately about you and me, but I think there's a lot of truth and a lot that God has to offer for you and I uh, with respect to this. So four things in the text. Uh, the first is, is found in verses 1 through 3. And we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time in verses 1 through 3 because this is actually the conclusion that he comes to. Uh, But let me give you the main idea first. It's that we declare God's supremacy. Part of humbled praise is that you and I would be men and women who declare the supremacy of our God. Look at what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You might read that, and if you've read ahead, you know what comes in the coming verses. And maybe it's even a little bit confusing where you're going, wait, I don't understand how he says that. But then a few verses later, he's talking about uh, the, these other things and, and, and how, how great he is and, and so full of himself that he is. Um, have you ever watched a movie or a TV show where it'll open with a particular scene and maybe that scene is even captivating or it's kind of gripping and you're like, oh, that's really fascinating. And then it'll fade out and then it just, you, you, you end up at some other scene and it says something like, like 12 hours ago or three days ago or three months ago. You ever seen something like that? Okay, most of us have. That's what's happening in the text here. He starts at the end. This is the conclusion right here. And because this is the conclusion, we want to make sure we understand some of the different things that Nebuchadnezzar has come to know and to see. And so really what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you a story, but let me just tell you what God taught me through that story right up front. And so notice a few of those aspects specifically here in verses 1 through 3 around this idea of declaring God's supremacy. First of all, we declare God to all people. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Right, this, is, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar is saying. This is for all people. This is for all nations. This is for all tribes, for all tongues. This is for everybody. In fact, what Nebuchadnezzar is getting at is he's saying this message, much like the gospel message, is for all nations. Now, loved ones, don't miss, don't miss the gravity of the person who's making this statement. This is fascinating. Because this is not a Jewish priest, this isn't a Levite, this is a Babylonian king who is the ruler of a pagan nation. And yet he's the one who's uttering these incredible and profound truths about God. And part of the reason that I bring that, uh, that, that I want to draw that out is what we see in chapter 4 is we see this redemptive component to the captivity of the nation of Judah. Because I'm not sure that Nebuchadnezzar is saying these things if he's not constantly around God's people, learning God's ways, and being exposed to God himself. There's a redemptive component of God taking the people into the land. In fact, Jeremiah wrote about this. Jeremiah 29, he writes to the exiles who are in captivity. Let me read to you a part of the letter that he writes to them. I'm going to start in verse 4. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's saying, I sent you there. I did this. You're there because I determined it might be important for us to remember when we're 
confused about why God has us in a particular place. Verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then look at what he says in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God's saying, I'm sending you there to flourish. I'm sending you not only for your own well-being, but for the well-being of this other nation, for the people of this other nation. And what we have unfolding in Daniel, in Jeremiah, is the reality that God has deep concern. God has a heart for the nations. Did you hear that? Not just our nation, not just our people, not just our community. God has a heart for the nations. See, God's commitment to Israel had nothing to do with them being special or great. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, God's like, y'all are pretty vanilla when it comes to people groups. But I chose you so that my glory and my power could be displayed. And the reason that God chose Israel wasn't because they were great. It was they just had the distinct privilege of taking the gospel to the nations, which is now part of the responsibility of the church. This has always been God's heart. The people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would, would, would speak and proclaim praise to him. If you don't believe me, go read Revelation chapter 7, where we see that very scene unfolding. It's a multicultural event that's going to unfold in eternity. And so our declaration of God, it's not simply a local one. Yes, we need a local presence. Yes, we need a local voice. We need to be engaged locally. That's why things like Faith Serves are so helpful and so important to engage in those items and in those matters. But loved ones, man, we we need a global declaration of the gospel. We should be deeply concerned about the expanse of the gospel, not just in the 505 and not just in New Mexico and not even just in America, but around the world. We need to be invested in global missions. Let me give you three really quick practical ways to do that. First of all, give. Give of your time, give of your money. Give. Start putting your money into the expanse of the gospel globally. Secondly, pray. There's a fascinating component that exists between these first two. As you give more, you tend to pray more. It's just the way that it works out, I think, because we're invested in it. But pray. Jonathan was talking about during announcements in a couple weeks from Mission Sunday. Be really intentional about seeking out missionaries, figuring out what's going on in their lives. Pray for them. And do that faithfully and intentionally. And then go. Some of you are going to get sent out. You may know that. You might not know that. But there's going to come a point in time God's going to send you out for a specific purpose. And so pray about that. Ask God about that. And don't think, well, I'm too old for that. No, it's the best time to go. Because you actually have some wisdom and some experience to offer, right? Uh, and just because you, listen, just because you pray and God says no today, doesn't mean he might not send you a few years from now. Okay, so this isn't like a one-time thing. Well, I prayed, he said, no, I'm off the hook. Yes, no Africa ever for me. No, no, that just means right now the answer is no. Now, he may never send you. In fact, most people he won't, but he may send you, right? We declare God's supremacy. We, we declare God to all people. Secondly, where that is very much a public component, notice verse 2, it's, it's much more so a personal component. Right? We declare God's personal care to us. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. There's nothing arrogant in that. He's just saying, man, God has been really, really good to me. He's letting his listeners know God has a specific concern and care for me personally. There's a personal manner, there's a personal component in God's care for what he's doing for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? When you think about the God who rules and reigns over every single thing that has ever existed. And that same being has personal concern, personal care, personal investment in you. That's amazing. Let's stop for a moment and just think about this last week. Just think about the last week. Think about how God has personally cared for you in this last week. The God who controls all things. You think about all that's going on in the news and all that's happening around the world. And of course, we, you know, we're just on this tiny little rock in this enormous um, universe and whatnot. And all, God's over all of that. And yet, how God showed up and made provision or gave wisdom or brought comfort or solace or care or just a faithful presence or whatever it may be. That God's care is not just some big generic aspect, but it's particular, uh, particular and it's personal. What the Most High God has done for me. Love that. Thirdly, look at verse 3. He says, How great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. We declare God's greatness and might. Right? We declare God's greatness and might. Nebuchadnezzar speaking to God's work and to His wonders. And loved ones, we would do well to, to declare these wonders, to speak of these wonders, to be reminded of these wonders in our personal times of worship or throughout the week just in a moment of clarity, to be reminded of God's greatness and his might. And here's why I would really encourage you to try to foster and to facilitate this in your life, is that as you um, begin to do that, as you begin to be uh, reminded of that, it gives perspective for your life. Here's what I mean by this. See, when I'm reminded of God's power, the circumstances in my life, the things in my life that might feel overwhelming or difficult or demanding or like, man, I, it's consuming. When I'm reminded of how powerful God is, it brings clarity to the things that are going on in my life. I realize they're just not that big. And so one of the things that I've just been trying to work to do, I, I, I'm not good at it, uh, but I'm working to get better at it, is I've just tried to create rhythms and routines in my life to help me remember this. So here's one particular way that, that I've begun to do this is, is I, I just want to tell myself every time I look at the Sandias, um, which is often when you live on this side of the city, every time I look at the Sandias, I just want to remind myself that the God that I serve said some words and those things came into being. Right, like God said a couple, and maybe he just said Sandias. There they are. And every time I look at them to be reminded that I serve a God who's powerful, I serve a God who's mighty, I serve a God who's great. And, and so every, right, I mean, you'll notice that you're going to get in your car and you're going to leave from church. And as long as you don't turn out of the parking lot and head left and head to the west, you're going to be staring at those things. Right? Those enormous physical structures that, that, that are really the anchor point for the entirety of our city. Right? The first thing everyone told me when I moved here, the mountains are east. If you're confused, the mountains are east, Right? And you guys laugh because you're like, yeah, that's probably what you heard first. Or that's maybe the first thing you told me. Uh, But it's this anchor point for us. So when you look at those or when I look at those, what I'm trying to tell myself is, man, 
my God is great and mighty. But see, when I pull out of the parking lot of the church and things are in my mind, I'm like, how are we going to do this? I don't know how we're going to make this work. I don't, I can't figure this out. And it begins to be a little bit consuming. It begins to be a little bit overwhelming. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then I look at those things and I'm like, well, I don't have it figured out, but I serve the God who said a couple words and those things came into being. I think we're going to be okay. Right? We declare God's greatness and might. Finally, look at verse 3. Well, really what the entirety of the book of Daniel is about is summarized here in the second half of verse 3. His, God, uh, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. We declare God's everlasting kingdom, which is distinct from the variety of kingdoms that were shown and revealed to us in the book of Daniel. Because Nebuchadnezzar is not around ruling anymore. Darius isn't here, right? The, 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 these guys are no longer present ruling in any way, shape, or form. But God's kingdom hasn't flinched. Right? This is our eternal hope. God's everlasting kingdom. And so we declare God's supremacy. This is where Nebuchadnezzar ended up. Okay, how did he get here? Well, he begins to tell us. Look at verse 4 and following. And I'm not going to read every one of these verses. We'll summarize portions. But, but here's the story as it begins to unfold. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Life's pretty good for him. Verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so he has this vision. God gives him this vision and this dream. And he's like, great, here we go again. Um, and, and so he begins to reach out to the magicians and, and to the counselors. And they start coming in. And they're like, can't help you, can't help you, can't help you. And then finally Daniel comes in. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh, Daniel, yes, you're the guy who's good at this. What does this mean? And Daniel's like, well, what, what was the dream? And, and this time he actually tells him, and Daniel's probably like, yes, thank you. Didn't have to figure that part out. That was helpful, right? But then he begins to tell him, this was the vision. This was the dream. And here's what it was. He said, I saw this huge tree. It was just enormous tree. And it was beautiful. And it was fruitful and abundant. And birds lived in it. And beasts of the fields found their shade in it. And it was amazing. And Daniel's like, okay, then what? Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. Uh-oh. He goes on to describe, not only are you going to chop down the tree, but we're going to cut off all the branches and strip off all the leaves and, and the birds and the animals scatter and it's no longer fruitful. And you're going to take this band of iron and you're going to, you, you, you're going to, Put it around the, 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 the trunk or the stump that's left, and it's going to be left open in this field exposed to the elements. And then, verse 17, he talks about the sentence from the Holy One. It says, The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy Ones. Here's why all this is happening. To the end that, and if you don't have these next couple lines underlined in your Bible, you should fix that right now. The living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Here's why this is happening. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that. He's just uh, responding to Daniel, telling him what's going on. And so he says, can you tell me, what does this mean? What, what, what is this about? And Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. 
And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And so he answers, I love this, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Which is just a really kind way of saying, I don't think you want to hear what I've got to tell you. Because this is bad news. This is hard news. You are not going to like what this means. And he goes on to tell him, he's like, you're the tree. You're the tree. You're the one who's going to get cut down. And starting in verse 24, he begins to tell him what it actually means. Look at what he says. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Now, it, it may be seven years, it might be seven other periods of time, but it's going to be a while that he's literally going to lose his mind, think he's a cow, and hang out in a field eating grass. Why? Look at the end of verse 25. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's that statement again. In fact, he's going to say it again. You're going to see it again in verse 32. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. As if that wasn't bold enough. Verse 27, Daniel goes, on that note, can I just maybe share a couple other things that might be helpful for you? And he says this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may, be, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Let me just pause there here and let's work through that for a moment. See, what we see unfolding in verses 4 through 27 is that God warns us of his wrath. Don't miss that. God is warning people of his wrath that is to come. Three things specific to that. Notice, first of all, in verse four and five, that it's God's kindness to alarm us. And you might say, man, you're talking about wrath and kindness. I I don't put those two words together very often. You're going to see God's kindness all over the place here to Nebuchadnezzar in warning him, in in helping to move him to a different place. Of course, he's not going to heed that counsel, but it's God's kindness to do this as opposed to just showing up and, hey, you're done. It's God's kindness to alarm us. Look at what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. So things are fantastic for Nebuchadnezzar. They're, they're, they're going along swimmingly with one problem. He's at odds with God, and he does not even know that he's at odds with God. And so God begins to warn him of that, make him aware of that. Verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so I'm going to suggest that this is God's kindness to alarm us. So uh, you might be like, yeah, I'm not sure that that's necessarily kind of God. I mean, he's afraid and he's kind of freaking out and he's alarmed. So I ask you, church, what would be the more kind thing to do? To let him continue? In his ease and prosperity, ignorant of his standing before God, racing to a Christless eternity, or to intervene and make him aware of his profound need of God? I don't think it's really that hard of a question. Let me just give you another illustration to maybe help drive this point home. Imagine that you 
decided to go out for a drive Saturday afternoon. Hey, let's go check out uh, Jemez or let's go check out the Pecos. And, and so we just want to drive around and explore and enjoy those beautiful areas. And so you head out on a drive and you stop somewhere maybe to get a snack or get gas. And, and you're walking in and I'm walking out. We run into each other. We start talking to each other a little bit. And I realize you're going uh, the, the opposite direction of where I'm coming. And there's this crazy thing that I came to realize about three miles up the road. This enormous bridge that you're going to cross over doesn't exist anymore because it's it's been washed out or it's gone or it's structurally fallen apart. And so if you continue to drive on that road, you're going to come around a bin and fall off that thing to your death. But I hear you talking about how much you're enjoying this drive, how much fun this has been. You haven't enjoyed a Saturday afternoon like this in so long. Now I ask you, what's the kind thing for me to do to ruin your Saturday or to spare your life? Right? Because those are really the two options. Like, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. They were having so much fun. I just figured I'd let them go. That's not kind. Right? For God to just let Nebuchadnezzar go would be the opposite of kindness. And so he, don't miss this, right? God is making him uncomfortable, even fearful. But it's driving him to the person of God, which is a good thing. So you might have some things going on in your life that are creating or evoking fear. You might have some things going on in your life that are making you really uncomfortable. It's really difficult. I don't know what God is doing in this. This is hard. But if those items are pushing you to the person of God, it is the kindness of God that is allowing that so that you can be near to him. Because here's, that's what God's doing with Nebuchadnezzar. Here, here's a dream. This is going to freak you out. You're going to want to get answers. You're not going to get them. Uh, eventually, Daniel's going to tell you, uh, but you're literally going to lose your mind for a while before you're going to come back to me. Right? It's God's kindness to alarm us. Secondly, it's God's kindness to reveal his rule to us. I mean, that's the bulk of this story. Starting in verse 6 all the way through verse 26. Right, this vision is tied to him or it's intended to help him know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. That's what God is after for Nebuchadnezzar. This is what I want you to see. This is what I want you to know. You might be a big tree, but you are not, you're not without a concern or issue. I, I can cut you down in a moment if need be. This is not ultimately about you. This is ultimately about me. It's God's kindness to reveal his rule. It's God's kindness to us, loved ones, that he doesn't let us live in some delusion that we're autonomous and we're in control and we can handle everything in and of ourselves. That would be the opposite of kind, to let you think something that's not true. That God is revealing his rule. And then notice this in verse 27, we see God's kindness and repentance. Daniel finishes this interpretation and he's essentially calling Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, hey, you need to repent. Turn right now. Now's your moment. Now's the time. This is when you want to step away from these things. It's God's kindness that he allows us to repent and to be restored to him. But not only that, I think there's a couple of other things that are really valuable lessons that we I can glean from verse 27. We won't spend long, but let me just give you three things that we see in Daniel that I think are really helpful for us. First of all, notice that Daniel is a faithful witness with hard truths. 
He's a faithful witness with hard truths. On the heels of giving a king a very unfavorable interpretation, would have been really easy to just be like, there it is, good luck with that. But he's like, hey, while we're at it, let me just give you a couple of other things. You should break off sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. I mean, this isn't something that a lot of us would do with just a friend or a coworker, much less with a king. And yet these are words that Nebuchadnezzar so desperately needed to hear. Loved ones, we have to be willing to be faithful witnesses to the people that God has put into our lives, even if those are hard truths. We got to be willing to tell people that they're out of sorts with God. We're not kind in letting them think something that isn't actually true. Dave Helms says this about verse 27. He says, we must be willing to say why God works against us so we might know that he rules and not us. Are we faithful witnesses to hard truths to the people in our lives? We see Daniel being a faithful witness to this. Secondly, we see Daniel being tender in calling people, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, to repentance. There's a tenderness, there's a compassion, there's a, a mercy and an empathy that, that he demonstrates. And you go back to verse uh, 18 and 19 where, where he's kind of alarmed and he's, he's off guard and he's like, man, I, I, I think Daniel legitimately wants this for his enemies. I mean, if Daniel didn't care for, for Nebuchadnezzar, he'd be like, well, I, I don't know if you're going to like it. Do you want to hear it or not? But he's like, man, I, I, he has concern for Nebuchadnezzar and for his well-being. And keep in mind, this is the same king that, even though it was probably years earlier, this is the same king that threw three Jewish guys into a fire because they wouldn't worship a statue that he had built. It'd be really easy for Daniel to be sitting there being like, I got issues with this guy. This guy kind of had it coming. Nebuchadnezzar, you're getting, you're actually getting what you deserve. And yet that's not at all the case. He's tender in calling him to repentance. And as as Christians, as followers of Jesus, God help us, listen to me, God help us, that we would find no delight, that we would find no satisfaction, no enjoyment whatsoever in non-Christians getting what they deserve. We should be broken and, and grieved, right? We should be people of grace. Think about Jesus in Luke 19. You know what's going on in Luke 19? Jesus is days away from his death. He's heading into Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be crucified. And it is the wicked and rebellious individuals of that city that are going to lead to his death. And what's he doing is he stands out looking over the city. He's weeping over them. He's broke. These are the same people who hate him and will betray him unto death. And he's weeping over them. Oh, how we need to understand how the gospel's rescued us. Because because when we get that, it softens us towards people who are far from God. We have empathy and compassion because we go, that's what I was until God intervened and rescued me. Judgment will well up within us when humility and gospel reminders are absent. Oh, God, help us. We'd be tender in calling people to repentance. And then thirdly, this, this really is a little bit distinct from the first two, but I think it's important to say, because Daniel makes this unmistakably clear, he's, he's saying the time to repent is now. The time to repent is now. The moment of conviction is the moment of change. So you might be sitting here this morning, you might be a follower of Jesus, but you're stuck in besetting sin, or you've just been really apathetic in your faith, or you've been uh, just, just walking in open rebellion. 
the time to repent is right now. You might be sitting in here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus. You have never turned from sin and towards him. You've never given your life uh, to him. You've always said, no, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm good. I don't need him. And you need to repent for the first time of the fact that you, you are not self-sufficient. Nebuchadnezzar would love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and tell you how you're not self-sufficient. And that what you desperately need is the person of Jesus to rescue you. But regardless of where you find yourself, the time to repent is now. Do not, do not, do not get lulled into thinking, I can do this later. I'll get to it later. I'll get around to that. Because notice what happens in Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So we have no idea how he responded to what Daniel said in that moment. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, so now we're fast forward a year, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, now check out this statement. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. I think it's safe to assume he didn't get it. So God responds, Immediately, Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken. The kingdom is departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Here it is again, until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And this is a striking image. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Dude has gone crazy and he looks like he's gone crazy. I mean, mangled, matted, gnarly, out in the field, hands and knees, eating grass. It's the most powerful man on the planet and he looks like a loon. See, what we see in verses 28 through 33 is that God will humble us in our sin. God will humble us in our sin. So let me just be really, really concise in terms of this. You need to understand that if you are here and you are in sin, and if you choose to remain in sin, God is going to humble you and he's going to do it for your good. This is for Nebuchadnezzar's good. And what you need to understand is that no one, no one, no one is beyond the humbling hand of God. You're not. I'm not. Nebuchadnezzar certainly wasn't. In fact, just a couple of things briefly. Notice, first of all, how quickly it comes. I mean, like that. Standing on the top of his temple, looking out over his kingdom. Look at how awesome I am. Voice from heaven. Hey, that's changing. Maybe you're here today thinking, man, I, I got life figured out. I've got life by the horns. I don't need Anything, or maybe you're like Nebuchadnezzar, what you're really saying is, I don't need Jesus. He was thinking the same thing. Then he's in a field eating grass, thinking he's a cow. I'm not saying you're going to do that, although you might, never know. But it is important for us to understand how quickly this comes. Secondly, just let's be clear that none are able to resist. This is the most powerful man on the planet. Had no shot at resisting what God was going to do here. And you have to understand that this is God's kindness to correct him. God is doing Nebuchadnezzar an enormous favor. 
See, Hebrews 12 talks about God disciplining those whom he loves. This is God's corrective uh, measure for his good. God has warned him. God has alarmed him. Daniel's called him to repent. And a year later, he's standing on top going, look at how great I am. He's clueless. He's clueless. Loved one, are you clueless? Are you aware of your need? Are you uh, aware of how broken and lost you are? Are you aware that apart from Christ, you have nothing? Do you have a healthy sense of who you really are and who God really is? Because if we remain in pride, we will not lift our eyes to heaven. It's the lowly state that causes us to look back to the Lord because we're aware of our need. And so you might be here today. You might be wrestling through something or wondering about something like, why why does God have me in this place? It might be to help you return to him. God humbles us in our sin. And then, oh, thank God that that's not the end of Daniel chapter 4. Thank God for verses 34 through 37. God restores us and we respond in humbled praise. In fact, let me read this. And I would encourage you, maybe just even close your eyes and let this wash over you as a reminder of God's goodness and grace to you in your life. Here's what he says. At the end of days, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You can almost hear how that comes off of his lips. He's, it's almost like he's saying, man, if anyone knows this truth, guys, it's me. I know this to be true. What a beautifully redemptive conclusion And what a word of hope for us that if God can do this with someone like Nebuchadnezzar, there is hope for you and me because God can do that in your life and in mine. So notice four things, briefly four things. And and I think that the the sequence or the order of each of these things are crucially important. Look at verse 34. Here's the first thing. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So part of being restored and responding in humbled praise is we have to be willing to face God. He got to this point or he said, you know what? In and of myself, I got nothing else. And so he lifts his eyes to heaven. He's looking to the Lord. And restoration will only begin when you and I are willing to face God, when we're willing to, to turn and approach God and, and, and to get in front of him. I'm going to face God and then notice God's response. It actually doesn't tell us God's response, at least not explicitly, though it is implied when Nebuchadnezzar says, and my reason returned to me. 
He didn't have the ability to bring his reason back. God did that. That's God's kindness and grace to him. That's God's mercy to him. That's God showering his, his goodness upon him. Now, listen to me, listen to me. I think this is, I think this is where so often we just miss what God has for us. That we avoid facing God or we're hesitant to do so or we shy away from it because the, the, the response we expect is so radically different than the response that we get. God is unbelievably gracious and kind to this very arrogant, proud king. And I think far too often what you and I have in mind is when we think about facing God, what we tend to think of is I'm going to get a verbal lashing from him. I'm going to get shamed by him. I'm going to get this just disgusted reluctance that God is like, oh, finally, right? Or just kind of the shaking of the head like, well, it's about time. Yet that's not what we see here. And it's not what we see in other parts of the scriptures. There's one other example we find in the scriptures. How about Luke 15 and the prodigal son? The father that meets his rebellious, wicked son far off. Here's a son who said to his father, you're dead to me. Give me your money so I can blow that stuff living how I want to live. And off he goes. And when he decides to come back, it's not this sense of, oh yeah, this is wrong and I know what's right. It's just, I could work as a servant and it's better than where I'm at. He's not repentant when he begins to come home. But then there's the father who sees his son far off. And this is, this is where I think so often we miss arguably the most pointed aspect of the entire parable. And he runs to his son. Why? Because they're living in an honor and shame culture. And what the father wants, the father wants to be the first person to get to his son because he doesn't want anyone else to be able to hurl some insult or project some shame or put something on his son. And so he runs to his son so that he will be the one that will bear the shame, that will bear the guilt, that will bear the burden, which is exactly what Christ has done for you and I. It's the beauty of that story. I'm going to take the shame, I'm going to take the wrath, I'm going to take all of it, and I'm going to put it on myself. And so as the Father and the Son walk through the community, either now people are silent or they're going to say it to the Father, not to the Son. Loved one, you and I are the Son, and we have a loving Father who comes and bears our shame and our guilt and our wrath. And if you are choosing not to face God because you're afraid of what he's going to do, you have misunderstood, you have bought a lie about who God is and how he responds. Because he's not wringing his hands. He's not saying, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on them and give them something. No, no, no. He is saying, child, come home because you are forgiven and you are loved. But that doesn't happen until we face God. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. Notice what he says next. I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. We worship God. I mean, how could we not in response to that? Worship God. And then he literally breaks into song. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In short, you know what he's saying? 
He's saying the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to him every will. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's saying right there. See, he gets it. He gets it now. Do you get it? Do you understand what's going on here? And then finally this. I wish, man, I wish we had more time to just really press the depths of verse 36 and verse 37. But look at all that comes back to him. His reason returns, his glory, his kingdom, his majesty, his splendor, his counselors, his lords are seeking after him. He's established in his kingdom. And this line at the end of verse 36, oh, I love this line. And still more greatness was added to me. Just write that word grace in your margin. That's God's grace. That's God's kindness. That's God's goodness. That this king was, uh, was owed nothing. He deserved nothing. And yet God is just excessively pouring his goodness upon him. Right? He extends more grace to us. It's his kindness to give him far more than he deserved. And it's God's kindness that gives us far more than we deserve. God is extending his grace, not just in salvation, but in generosity towards us. Right? This is humbled praise. God humbles us for our good and for his glory. And maybe God has you in a place where he's bringing you low or to a place of humility or difficulty. But in that process, if God is making Jesus sweeter, if he's making him more treasured or more glorious, that is God's kindness to you, loved one. And let us be people who will live in humble praise. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. Oh, we thank you. That you are so good and so kind. God, you're so gracious to give us what we don't deserve. Would you help us to live in humility? Would you help us to live in, in, in the fullest sense of understanding our inadequacy and our insufficiency? And yet the, the, the abundant sufficiency that's found in you. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us to be men and women who live in humbled praise, that we would posture ourselves, that we would position ourselves, that we would live under the fullness of this glorious truth that you are the most high, that you rule over all, and that you determine, you give the kingdoms of men to whomever you determine or whoever you desire. God, would you help us to live in confidence of how you're moving and working? We pray this in your name. Amen.